Chapter 21 People said she was a hermaphrodite, and that as the active and passive principles were united within her in a condition of stable equilibrium, she was an example of a perfect being. Anatole France, The Revolt of the Angels, 1914 Oh, Ross, Babette announces one Monday after school. I purchased a hot tub today! She beams from her office armchair before the television. It emits a stream of satellite news in rapid French. I set down my satchel and squint at newscasters waving at centigrade numbers pasted throughout a map of eastern Canada. Nice. You've wanted that for a while. True, but there remains one small detail. The dealer can install this machine, but we must build a foundation. I told them you could construct such a thing, oui? I nod. Probably. Doesn't seem like a hard project. I'll need dimensions and stuff. What day does it arrive? The said Wednesday afternoon. Oh. Outside the window, a steady sheet of April rain spatters the glass with Wagnerian percussion. I call the spa company and obtain specification details before Babette sends me off to Home Depot with her credit card. Soon, I labor away in the backyard under heavy torrents that turn cleared ground into swampland. One lilac bush, three small azalea shrubs, and several clusters of lamb's ears must be sacrificed. After a ten-foot square is leveled, I lay down flagstones. This secluded corner of the yard, between Japanese maples and grapevine tendrils, will become an exquisite place to relax and soak, but right now such reveries are numbed by cold water leaking inside my rain slicker. With numb fingers I pour more sand to elevate a low point and sneeze. Wiping my nose with a jacket sleeve only drags grit across my face. Once evening comes, I rinse off mud-caked boots with the garden hose. Untying knots in my soaked boot laces make every fingernail ache. Inside at last, I strip off every soaked outer layer. Underneath a damp woolen cap, my Chelsea bangs are pressed completely flat. Babette waits in the kitchen, a cup of tea thoughtfully held out. Thanks. I take the steaming mug and sit down heavily. My professor looks out the window. That looks like a splendid start. A shame about the poor lamb's ears. I'm always so fond of them, but grateful you began immediately under such terrible conditions. I grin. It's okay. Once I warm these sore muscles in the hot tub, all will be forgiven. There isn't much left. I can finish tomorrow. As scheduled, on Wednesday morning a truck arrives with several men who install the hot tub on my foundation. While they work, Babette sends me off to buy chlorine and other water treatment chemicals. By the time I return, everything is prepared. Our garden hose takes well over an hour to fill it, and my professor peeks out the window every few minutes inspecting the water level. She's almost beside herself with excitement by early evening when the temperature at last reaches 100 degrees. We exit into the backyard, I in my bathing trunks, and Babette completely nude. The location is perfect. Our neighbor's high wooden fence sheltering one side and tree boughs overhanging all around. Low sunlight filters through clouds, misty and gray. Birds dip their beaks in the concrete bath and chirp from perches on the grapevine trellis. I remove the cover and climb in. Babette clambers along behind. We switch the jets on and she emits a satisfied sigh. Her bosom bobs slightly, under pressure from the foamy current. I slide both feet along the bottom, then let my toes rise amidst bubbles at the far end. Behind my professor, the masonry exterior wall looms, its deep shadow filling our hollow. Why are those bricks so dark? I inquire. Some look almost scorched. Babette removes her fogged-over glasses and sets them on the fiberglass edge. That is because they were. 
You see, this house was built in the 1920s by a master architect using masonry recycled from an old foundry. Many of these bricks formed the forge's interior, and you can see what marks it left. They were still structurally sound and made quite a decorative pattern laid out in such a manner. Another interesting element you may have noticed as a resident of the cellar are steel I-beams, not typical residential construction materials then or now. How long have you lived here exactly? She smiles lazily and a streak of perspiration drips from under her wig. Since 1971. I'd expected longer. My professor laughs. If you are curious how this came about, I will tell you. But first I must travel back a ways. After graduating college in 1949, I returned to Europe and earned my doctorate at the University of Bordeaux. Those years were quite enjoyable. I traveled extensively throughout eastern Germany, even finding work with the communist government. This might seem strange, given my sympathies for, shall we say, the old regime? But I really enjoyed their social experiment. I met so many earnest, good-hearted people. You know, some people say I am just an old Nazi, but perhaps I am simply a Germanophile. Anyhow, soon afterward I returned to Portland and took a wife named Helen. You understand, for myself, gender has always been rather fluid. Of course, my French mother raised me in such a way that made this easier, as I was in fact born a hermaphrodite with sex organs for both genders. Perhaps that is why she picked me as an infant. It is true my breasts were surgically implanted some years ago, but this vagina has always been mine. I formerly possessed a penis also, but some pitiful thing not suited for sexual purposes. Helen was an understanding creature, and the two of us adopted three girls. We lived in southwest Portland for many years, and life continued as it does. Then, one day in the mid-1960s, a woman named Billy Shoemaker signed up for one of my Spanish classes. She was born as Frances Bertram Hein in 1925 to a very religious family from Connecticut. They nicknamed her Billy from childhood onward. Her father served as an officer with the British Army during World War I in France, Italy, and Egypt. Soon afterward, he emigrated to the United States and became a canon, eventually an archdeacon of the Episcopalian Church. Now, what Billy lacked in conventional beauty, she more than made up through a dynamic personality. Her passions ran strong and attracted many people. In 1946, she married a man named Raymond. They moved across the country to Portland and had a child together. This relationship was evidently not ideal. After five years, Billy divorced him and immediately married a much older local judge named Raymond Shoemaker. Now this Raymond turned out much more her style. Shoemaker grew up in Montana, worked on the railroads, and later as a gold miner in Colorado. There, he learned fluent Spanish, which became quite useful after joining the National Guard, as they sent him directly into Mexico after Pancho Villa in 1914 during the Mexican Revolution. This fellow Shoemaker was what people in the early 20th century called a free thinker. He opposed racial discrimination, supported women's rights, and felt very skeptical toward religion. On those notes, are you familiar with Emmanuel Haldeman Julius? No, I don't believe so. Do you mind if I switch these bubbles off? Babette shakes her head.
I cut the jets and stillness fills our corner of the yard. Thick steam rises off the water. Through it, my professor appears ghostly, caught in a warped prism. Well, for a leftist rabble rouser, much education remains before you. Haldeman Julius published the little blue book series, which inspired an entire generation of American contrarians. I will show you some from the judge's collection later. After the First World War, Schumacher made his living in Portland as an attorney. He did well enough, but during the Great Depression, with cash scarce, people often preferred bartering. Many clients paid him in property or other goods and services for legal work. Long term, these arrangements worked out very well. He acquired this grand home for a fantastic deal and other land that only increased in value. Anyway, Billy Shoemaker taught high school as a physical education instructor, as well as Spanish, and eventually earned a master's degree in French language. This desire for learning led her to Portland Community College, where our paths crossed. We immediately fell in love. My wife suspected something, though I tried evading her suspicions. At last, one day, I came home from school and found all my things boxed up in the front yard. Helen had decided she was through with me. I stood there, surrounded by my worldly possessions, when Billy pulled up with a van. We loaded up my belongings, drove back to her house on Tolman Street, and I have lived here ever since. Wait, wait. How did the judge feel about that? I ask. Was he still alive? Oh, quite alive, Babette smiles. <laughs> that same day, Shoemaker took me into his office privately. He explained that his wife loved me, and as a willful individual, would certainly leave him if forbidden to. The old fellow was then in his late seventies and recently retired from the bench. He feared solitude and proposed a solution. I could reside in their house, and we would all make the best of things. My professor scratches against the rough textured side, and her breasts wobble back and forth. Truly, I say the next several years were absolutely wonderful. A vision of heaven. The three of us lived together with great affection. This lasted until 1977, when poor Judge Shoemaker collapsed dead from a heart attack on the front steps. Sad for us, but really, he lived a long and rewarding life. Such a dear man. Afterwards, Billy and I continued our lives and traveled extensively around the world on my tours. I had never conceived a more joyful existence, but it ended in 1990 when Billy contracted cancer. We married before her death a short time later. This left me with the judge's house, but his same predicament as I also fear loneliness. Since that time, I have striven to find companions I enjoy and who put up with my eccentricities in return. There, I answered your question. For the last 30 years, I lived here and pursued my passions as best I could. So you see, I have led an interesting life, no matter what you say. I grin. That's no exaggeration. But my fingers are nearly prunes. I think I'm done with this soak. Back indoors, I dry off in my basement room, then dress and head upstairs. Babette waits, a stack of booklets before her on the kitchen table. Ah, Rolf. She greets me, her untied bathrobe swinging open. 
Here are some of Haldeman Julius's many publications. Look what a variety! Everything from proverbs of Hindustan to popular Shakespearean quotations. But this publisher did not shrink from inflammatory subjects. Here are two, the lies of religious literature and the ghastly purpose of the parables. Remember, these are from the 1920s, hardly a tolerant time for such criticism. Now, you can see Shoemaker read avidly, inscribed his name with dates, and often took notes inside. Quite fascinating stuff and heady social material, especially then. Oh, look here, a book of familiar quotations. In the back, Shoemaker added one of his own. He wrote, A man who rolls the mantle of prejudice about him and refuses to consider any measure on its merits is fit only to starve. He is an encumbrance on the earth and should give way to others. Well, I can't agree more. But come, Billy kept an album you will enjoy. She leads me to the study and pulls down a large binder from atop one bookshelf. It is stuffed with newspaper clippings and photographs glued on black construction paper. Babette thumbs along and holds out pages for me to see. Billy compiled this scrapbook over decades. Look, here, in 1954, the judge wrote an op-ed for the Oregonian criticizing Senator McCarthy and the excesses of his anti-communist crusade. Not a popular position during the Red Scare, and risky as a public figure. The same year, Billy's father, Archdeacon Hein, visited Portland. He was quite a religious celebrity, and the media played plenty of attention, as you can see. Can you imagine what dinner conversations these two men must have had? A famed archdeacon and an atheist judge? Nearly the same age, but one married to the other's daughter. But from what I understand, they actually cultivated quite a warm friendship. Babette flips over a couple more leaves. Here came a minor scandal in 1956. The police arrested a 17-year-old for possession of beer. Shoemaker ruled he should be freed, since this juvenile was not a known troublemaker, currently married, and had a job. This leniency embarrassed him two weeks later, when the same young man returned in handcuffs, charged with auto theft. What is that? I exclaim, and point at a black-and-white picture glued above one article. It depicts our living room, though differently decorated. A small, fair-haired girl sits at the piano and smiles. Beside her looms a circus clown in white makeup. His grease-painted grin leers. Oh, yes, Babette muses. You know the early television show Howdy Doody? Well, one of the stars of that program was a clown called Clarabelle, played by the actor Ed Alberian, whom Billy attended college with in Pennsylvania. He visited the Shoemakers in 1956 and put on a special show for neighborhood children. That is her daughter beside him. Anyhow, 1957 was a big year. Here, Judge Shoemaker worked closely with a group who opposed the death penalty, and then that summer wrote another newspaper op-ed, where he condemned racism and the Little Rock Nine school integration controversy in Arkansas. I know it doesn't seem like much, but you must remember in those days, such views were not well received even here. The Northwest was never a friendly place for non-whites once Europeans gained a firm foothold. People think of this as a progressive part of the country, and perhaps today that is somewhat true. 
We fondly remember Oregon was admitted into the Union as a free state with no slavery, but forget our Constitution also banned black Americans from residence within it. At least in the South, a freed slave was not illegal for mere existence by color of their skin. She turns another page, thick with yellowed newsprint. Here is the final series of clippings. In 1959, a police officer, taking side work as a process server, was spotted prowling around residential neighborhoods, out of uniform, and completely drunk. A man challenged him for trespassing, and the two fell to blows. Of course, the police enthusiastically arrested him for assaulting an officer. Shoemaker ordered him released, which the department took as an absolute declaration of war. Police began boycotting his court and taking cases all the way out to Gresham. There are several articles here. In this one, deputies are quoted saying he doesn't treat them respectfully enough in court and sometimes makes them feel like they're the ones on trial. Shoemaker responds by claiming his job is to stand between citizens and authorities who would rather run the country like a police state. Such language from a judge in those times. But he won in the end, was re-elected twice, and ended his days a well-respected member of the community. I clap my hands together. What an amazing man. To think he got away with it back then. Oh, I wish I could have met him. Babette laughs. He would have appreciated your politics. But now we jump quite far ahead, as Shoemaker retired soon afterward, and his life became much more sedate. This next article is from a newspaper in Glasgow, Montana, which reported on our last trip during the autumn of 1974. We traveled through the countryside where Judge Shoemaker spent his childhood. A wonderful way to say goodbye to the world, as it turned out, don't you think? Here, it says, Judge Ray D. Shoemaker, 80, of Portland, Oregon, was a visitor in Glasgow over the weekend. He was accompanied by his wife and Dr. Albert Ellsworth, a professor. I wonder what they thought of us all traveling together. Such an odd picture. She chuckles a little sadly. Well, those days are long gone. Soon I shall be as well. I think I will go to bed and lie down. That boiling machine outside is truly wonderful, but has evaporated all my energy. Where has that girl Naomi gone anyhow? I think out for a visit with some friends. No doubt she'll return before long. Babette snorts sharply. <laughs> then I bid you adieu for the moment. Her footsteps clump upstairs. My stomach growls. I lean against the kitchen counter, flipping through several Haldeman Julius pamphlets and mull over snack options. A bowl of fruit rests atop the calcinator lid, and I have selected an apple when Naomi walks in the front door. Hello, I salute her, setting down epigrams of Oscar Wilde. You missed our inauguration of the jacuzzi? She shrugs. Ah, well, I'm sure I'll try it soon enough. Did you have fun? I ask. Naomi nods. Yeah, it was nice to get out of the house and have a cold drink. I think one more lukewarm cocktail will kill me. How's our old lady? My teeth penetrate the sour green skin, and I chew for a moment. Talkative. Gave me the story of how she moved in here. Noticed you were gone, though. I'll get a lecture on my ungratefulness tomorrow. Or tonight, if Bobby stays up. That's lame. So, I'm curious about some things. Babette did acknowledge living as Albert. She certainly never opened up about that before. 
There's just so much I learned. My brain is completely spinning. How she got involved with the East Germans, moved in here with Billy and the judge, plus have you ever seen that creepy clown photo? I'll seriously be having nightmares all week. She also said being born hermaphrodite was perhaps why Germaine took an interest and stole her away from Yakima. I guess it fits with adopting a family later, if she couldn't have her own children. My god, Ross. Naomi cuts me off. You should never take our friends so seriously. I can't speak to the originality of Bobby's privates, thank heavens. But this one thing we will verify. Adopted? What nerve. She marches into the dining room and sorts through a small pile of accumulated mail. Let's see. She showed it off yesterday. Should still be here. Medical, electricity, water. Aha. Naomi removes an envelope, already sliced open from Babette's efficient knife strokes. She tips out a color photograph and hands it over. I examine the picture. It is a woman and child, the youth perhaps seven years old. They are clearly kin, and the common ancestor is without a doubt Babette. I draw in my breath at the resemblance. That's Bobby's daughter in New York, Naomi informs me. And the boy is her grandson. So you see, those genes were passed on somehow. I've seen pictures of her other two daughters, and there's no doubt about them either. In more introspective moments, she's admitted pretty awful things, burning their hands on the stove or locking them in closets for misbehaving. Maybe it was just the times, but she was a terrible parent in my opinion. Hmm, I muse. It certainly explains how estranged they are now. So, what of the rest? Babette showed me a bunch of information about Judge Shoemaker, but not much on his wife, Billy. Did you know her at all? We never met, but many old colleagues at school were quite close with both of them. Bobby left Helen for her and moved here in the early 70s. She makes it sound very innocent, abandoning her entire family, but it seems afterward her life was never happier. That's obvious in their pictures together. Oh, so she showed you some of Billy? Sure. Hell, they were in love. As much as Bobby is capable of it. She still keeps a photo on her nightstand. You've seen it. Oh my god. Yes, but I thought it was Albert in drag long ago. That's Billy? Naomi snorts. <laughs> yeah, pretty creepy, huh? I know there's another one around somewhere. She opens the china hutch and removes a decorative plate from underneath several others. Its edge is surrounded with ornate Chinese characters. Lacquered into the center is a photograph of two portly older people bundled up in warm jackets, their hands clasped together. Albert poses with a black beret and orange scarf. Billy snuggles beside him, her face framed by graying bangs. Their pale moon faces smile up at us. So similar, I remark. They could be siblings. Naomi nods. Like I said, pretty weird resemblance. Friends said they switched gender roles privately at home and openly when traveling. Albert probably never shared that part of himself with anyone before. It must have been quite a relief. Now, from what I've heard, Billy was quite a character. Bobby, as we know, is quite willful, yet Billy apparently kept her very much under control. Bobby performed all the housework, lived as her servant, and loved it. She won't admit this, but I find it significant they only married just before Billy's death. Of course, the judge passed away years before. Why wait so long? Well, I suspect it was their power dynamic. Billy held the upper hand completely that way. In the end, she relented. Or the cancer made her relent. She sets the plate back and shuts the cupboard. You won't find pictures of Albert around anymore, except with Billy. There's nothing Bobby hates more than being reminded she ever lived as a man.
I glance over toward the stairs, nervous for a moment Babette might overhear. It must have been awful, trapped inside your own body like that, pretending for society every minute of the day. She always talks about visions of hell, but for most of her life it was real. I shake my head. Naomi exhales wearily. I must admit, my sympathy is waning. I woke around 2 a.m. last night and found the bedroom door wide open. Bobby crouched at the foot of my bed, just staring at me. Oh, what a fright. It gives me chills remembering the nightlight reflecting off her glasses. I kept still, pretending to be asleep, and eventually she left. That woman is on much better behavior when you're around. Without wanting to sound like her, I do wish you stayed home more. When we watch films now, she sits on the couch beside me and cozies up close. Next, she puts her hand on my knee, slowly moves it up further and further, and then yikes, I have to scoot away. I wince. Sorry, I didn't realize that. I've been making friends, and my social life is a bit more active these days. Well, enjoy your freedom while it lasts. Also... Don't let Bobby talk down to you. Sure, she probably had two master's degrees by your age, but remember, everything has been fucking handed to her. The Catholic Church awarded scholarships, so her education was paid off. Then once she kicked her family to the curb, Bobby lived here rent-free. Most of her money and property came from the judge through Billy, so it's not like she earned it. I'm just saying, don't compare yourself. I nod. Yeah, thanks. The perspective is appreciated, but if I'm going to earn even a single bachelor's degree, there's a paper on Vichy France I should finish for my European history class. Naomi shivers and stares at the liquor cabinet. Good luck with that. I'd better fortify myself and then take my medicine upstairs. Good luck then. Oh, don't worry. We've been through this before. In the basement, I scan texts for my research project, but muffled shouts from upstairs can't be ignored. At last, a thunderous Anton Bruckner symphony blots out their argument. When the music concludes over an hour later, all is silent. The next day, I come home after a full day of classes and discover my professor in the kitchen. She sits tensely, bright eyes glittering behind her glasses. You may notice Naomi is no longer here, she begins. I asked her to leave last night, and this afternoon she packed her things. Oh no, I exclaim. Babette sniffs. It became clear she held other priorities than our friendship. After everything I did for her. But, uh, Selevi, it will not help if I dwell on such ungratefulness. However, I am so glad you are here. It is time we discussed your future. I take a seat across from her at the Formica table. How do you mean? My professor takes a drink of mineral water. Her wet lips smack together. Soon, this quarter will conclude. Do you anticipate continuing your studies in the autumn? With enough community college credits, you might soon transfer to Portland State University. Is higher education truly your goal? I meet her gaze. If you still want me here, the answer is yes. I know it means a lot having help around the house. It's also a good deal for me to work as little as I do and concentrate on homework. That's a situation I couldn't manage so well anywhere else. Babette beams. Oh, my heart is so glad. Then I extend an invitation. Please continue living here, as long as you remain in school. Summer will come soon, and I have wonderful trips planned. Oh, there is Crater Lake, the coast, also a very special place north of Victoria on Vancouver Island I adore called Cowichan Bay. Will you accompany me? We shall have a delightful time. 
Naomi's warnings ring in my head, but I push them aside. Absolutely, I agree. 